understanding. The peace of God passes understanding. A bit like what Jesus said, I'm giving you peace not as the world gives you peace. I'm giving you a peace that passes your human understanding. Just keep your finger there and just go back to Ephesians 3. Well, you've got a similar sort of idea. Ephesians chapter 3. He prays for them that they might be strengthened by God's Spirit in the inner man, verse 16. Again, the inward man, that God might strengthen your hidden inner man. Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Verse 18, that you may be able to comprehend. Verse 19, that you might be able to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. So he says, I'm praying that you will be able to know something which you can't know that you might know the love of Christ which passes knowledge a bit like here he says peace that passes understanding love of Christ that passes knowledge there's a sort of parallel between them what is the love of Christ? Well, as, as we've said the love of Christ is associated with his death on the cross as Paul said the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me Christ loved the church and gave himself for it on the cross, he says in Ephesians. And so, it's the blood of Calvary. It's the fact that he died for us on a completely personal level, which really should be able to give us that peace, which reigns in our hearts, and which is beyond understanding. I'd like to conclude with, with a point which maybe I won't express very well. But it, it seems to me that if we're in the truth, even for just a couple of years, and you live the truth as, as you should live it, then it seems to me that you somehow know something about God. And dare I use this word experience? It does come back to personal experience. We'll have all been in situations which have defied us humanly to resolve. It may have been in terms of physical safety or health or perhaps being trapped in a, in a certain situation in life, emotionally or otherwise, which we have felt is just unbearable and we can't go on with it. And somehow, we've come through it. And afterwards we've known peace with God. We may have sinned grievously. And like David, we've really confessed and we've really sorted ourselves out. And we've really known that peace with God. And somehow, as I say, I can't really express it in words because it's very difficult to put it in words, but somehow you can know something about God. You have a certain knowledge of peace with God through your experience of God, through the experience of your own sin, and through the experience of your own Bible reading, your own struggling day by day and hour by hour at times against yourself. You somehow know that you're right with God. And that is ultimately what I can't put in words, and which the Bible doesn't put in black and white. But it's a question of, as David says, taste and see that the Lord is, God, is good. You can't put it in words. You've got to taste and see. And if you know it, well, you know it. And I'm sure that all of us have known what I'm talking about. It's difficult to really live the truth as you should without knowing what I'm talking about. And what we've got to do is to maintain that, to abide in Christ. And we've got to have this positive belief that he really does see us just as, as we've been saying. 
that he sees us as perfect, that he sees us as men and women who he admires. Remember, Paul says in Corinthians, but at the day of judgment, he says, then shall every man have praise of God, have praise of God. Can you imagine God himself, Yahweh, the God of Israel, praising you? Can you really imagine? That's what it says. He's going to, we will receive praise of God. In case we think, well, perhaps you're just twisting that around the wrong way, we're given more information about that in that parable, where they come before Christ at Judgment Day, and he says, well done, when I was sick you went to see me. Well done, that was marvellous. What do they say? No, Lord, no, no, don't, don't say that about me. I didn't do that. It was what they didn't realise that had been a part of their life that they'd done. And that is actually how God sees us. It's difficult for us to actually know how God feels. But the fact is that there's probably a lot of things we do that really please God, that sort of make God really electric with us, which we don't realise. It's like children can just do something, can't they? Just say something or do a little action, which absolutely makes you respond in such great love towards them. And uh, they don't realise they're doing it. It's quite artless. And I feel that's how it is with us and God. At the same time, a lot of things we probably think we do that please God probably don't please Him. And so the fact is that God, to put it simply, God loves us a lot more than, than we really appreciate. And God sees us in a far more exalted way than we really believe. And that if only that can really go down into our hearts, the peace of God, as we started off by saying, can rule in our hearts in every situation, by all means, in every way, if we really know that we are one with God, and that whatever happens, if every relationship we have in this world collapses, if everything that we love and that we stand up for in this world collapses around us, that at the end of the day, if the worst comes to the worst, we will be in the kingdom of God. And there is God, as it were, with his arms around us, leading us, almost willing us, dare we say it, towards his kingdom. And so that's now over to us to really examine ourselves, to examine our own faith, to examine whether we really believe the gospel, the gospel, the love of God. And if we really do believe it, then there really is all joy and all peace through believing. And I look round here and I can see brothers and sisters who are, I know are solid in the truth and who have remained in Christ for many years, all of us here. And surely... We're going to remain, aren't we? Surely we... I mean, to, to whom shall we go? Can we walk away? No. And if we're in Christ, if we're staying in Him, we can be certain that if He comes back now, we will surely be in His kingdom. And if you believe that, all joy and all peace. Not arms around the neck and shaking hands and patting each other on the back and all this stuff. No, it's something beyond that. Much, much beyond that. It's peace that passes understanding. Beloved brothers and sisters, good morning. We thought yesterday, didn't we, about how we can get peace, and we associated this very strongly with the love of Christ toward us in his death on the cross. We saw in Colossians how we're told that he made peace through the blood of his cross. And you remember yesterday we also looked at Isaiah 53 where it says, He carried our iniquities on the cross, and on the cross the chastisement of our peace was upon him. 
In other words, it was through his work on the cross that this peace between us and God was, was created. And I don't know about your heart or, or you yesterday, but suddenly for myself, it, it sort of made it all come real for me once again that, in fact, we can have this openness of access between us and God, that we really can have this peace with God, and even more than that, surely we have got it. Surely we know that there's nothing between us and God. We have searched our hearts as we just sung, and we, we are willing to tear out anything that is separating us and, and our God. And so we do have that peace with God. I, I'm sure that we do. And I, I'm sure from the discussions we had yesterday that, in fact, we all believe, we, we all know that deep inside us we do actually have that peace with God, that freedom of access, that free conscience with Him. And so we've come here this morning to, to focus our minds upon the, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, upon his, his body and His blood. The bread and wine sort of makes it all come real once again. So we've come to celebrate the peace that we have between us and God. And Israel had a little thing that they did to celebrate their peace with God. When they felt they wanted to celebrate that peace that they had with God, they kept the peace offering. And that's why we want to focus uh, this morning on the peace offering. Because, in fact, as hopefully we're going to show, the breaking of bread, the way the breaking of bread is designed in the New Testament, is actually alluding back all the time to the peace offering. So we start off sort of bit of exposition, you know, just, just proving that the breaking of bread service was intended as the equivalent under the new covenant of what the peace offering was under the old covenant. Now, those of you who've got modern versions won't, won't read peace offering, but uh, I mean, I'm not too bothered about versions, but I mean, the AV really has got it right on that, I think. It, it, it is a peace offering because it's, it's to celebrate the peace that we have between us and, and, and God. Now, one of the very obvious connections between the peace offering and the, um, the breaking of bread is that at the peace offering, they drunk wine and they ate bread. Let's just prove that point. Let's go have a look at Numbers 15, verses 9 and 10. Numbers 15, verses 9 and 10. verse 8 to get the connection he says whenever you offer a burnt offering or a peace offering then verse 9 you've also got to bring with your animal um, some flour mingled with oil and also you've got to bring some wine for a sweet savour unto the Lord and you'll remember perhaps in 2 Samuel 6 where David offers a peace offering with the people he then also gives them bread and wine they took bread and wine with the peace offering I'm going to just shoot over there. That's 2 Samuel 6, um, 17 to 19. 2 Samuel 6, 17 to 19. At the end of 17, David offered peace offerings unto the Lord, and then, verse 19, he gave to all the people there, as they kept the peace offering, a piece of flesh, a loaf of bread, and a flagon of wine. So you see this association between the bread and wine and the peace offering. Now, the peace offering and the Passover, which in the Passover was also a type of the breaking of bread, um, they were the only offerings where the offerer actually ate the sacrifice. And he ate it, we're told, before the Lord. Whenever you read about the peace offerings, it says that they kept the peace offering before the Lord. 
In other words, there was God present with them as they offered this animal, ate this animal, and took bread and took wine. It's obviously pointing forward to, to the breaking of bread. And so, when we take the bread and wine, when we keep our peace offering, of course we're before the Lord. And there is a very special sense, I think, that at the breaking of bread, well, okay, Christ is with us all the time, but at the breaking of bread, I, I feel that we are particularly before the Lord, that we are very much his people in his house, in his presence. Now, when Jesus uh, kept the breaking of bread, the first one, we know it was the Passover, and he was actually keeping the Jewish Passover. And you might know that that psalm we read, 116, perhaps we could turn back to that, Psalm 116 was what they call one of the Hallel Psalms, the one of the Psalms that they read at the Jewish Passover. And they certainly would have read this at the, uh, at the Passover, when Jesus was breaking the bread. Now, this is... Uh, of course, first of all, in the first instance, written by, by David. And he says, verse 8, Thou hast delivered my soul from death, mine eyes from tears, marvellous words, uh, and my feet from falling. So he says, you, You've delivered me from the tears and the death of my life. He's presumably alluding to the way that God forgave him the sin, of, with, the sin with Bathsheba. And then, verse 12, he said, What shall I render unto Yahweh for all the good things he's done for me? What shall I do? He said, to thank God for all that he's done, this forgiveness, this peace that he's given me, this wiping away of my tears and the grief of my life. What shall I do? Verse 12, 13 gives you the answer. I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of Yahweh. He says, I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all his people. He goes on. Uh, 17. I will offer to thee the sacrifice of thanksgiving. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. If we keep our fingers there, if you're into underlining things, if you want to underline the sacrifice of thanksgiving, what was the sacrifice of thanksgiving? Let's go back to Leviticus 7, which we, uh, which we read. Leviticus 7 is going to tell us what the sacrifice of thanksgiving was. Okay, it says in verse 11, Leviticus 7, 11, it says, This is the law of the peace offerings. He shall offer it for a thanksgiving. And he shall offer with the sacrifice of thanksgiving unleavened cakes. And then verse 13, at the end of verse 13, the bread with the sacrifice of thanksgiving of his peace offerings. Okay, so the sacrifice of thanksgiving was the same as the peace offering. Okay, the sacrifice of thanksgiving was the same as the peace offering. So you go back to Psalm 116 verse 17, and he says, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Well, that's the peace offering. So, here we can see David in the first instance saying, what shall I do to praise God for this great peace that I have with him? He says, I will take the cup of wine, I will call on the name of the Lord, I will come, verse 9, before the Lord, which again we've seen was what happened at the peace offering, and I will offer a thank." offering, a sacrifice of thanksgiving, verse 17, which we've seen was another name for the peace offering. And he said, I would do this, he says, verse 14, in the presence of all his people. Verse 18, he emphasizes it, in the presence of all his people. 19, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of the O Jerusalem. And so, this then is the position we're in. Tears are wiped from our eyes. In a sense, as we said yesterday, we're like these two people. One of these people is still always going to have the grief, and always going to have the tears and the pain and the difficulty of this life. 
But the other one is free in Christ. The, the person we really are, this man that's in Christ Jesus, is, is this one that's, that's free from all this. The one who's rejoicing in Christ. What do we do to respond to that? We come before the Lord, as they did at the peace offering. We offer the, the sacrifice of thanksgiving. We take the cup of salvation, as David says here, and we do this in the presence of all God's people. Well, that's why we all come together, isn't it? We don't sit at home and break bread. We come in the presence of the Lord's house to focus our, our minds, as it were, on these wonderful things, that our salvation is assured, that our sin is forgiven, and the sin of the person next to you, that we all have this, this peace with God. Now, the peace offering was very much associated with, with sin. Whenever you read in the Law of Moses about the peace offering, it, it, it goes through the three offerings. It starts off with the, uh, the sin offering, and then you've got the burnt offering, and then you've got the peace offering. Always in that order, sin, burnt offering, peace offering. As if to start off with, you've got to recognize this problem of sin, and as it were, to make the sacrifice. And then to make the dedication, to, as it were, offer yourselves as a burnt offering. And then, the peace offering. And that's why, at the breaking of bread, there is this need for realistic self-examination. Not to just think, oh, well, great, God sees me as, as righteous, God's not looking at my sins. But to, to also realize, but I do sin. And to actually have a conscience, an awareness that we have actually sinned. And to, to know all those apparently little things that we've done, which we know are, are major in God's sight. Sin offering, that's a recognition of the sin. Burned offering, and then the peace offering. In the same way as in the New Testament, most of the times you read about peace, you read about three things, grace, mercy, and peace. And they're always in that order. Beginning of Paul's letters, at the end of the letters, grace, mercy, and peace. Always in that order. It doesn't say peace and then grace. The grace, mercy, the forgiveness of God, and then the peace. Like they did the sin offering first, then the peace offering. So, Leviticus 7.13. Interesting little detail here. Because I'm sure the battle we all have in our minds, but the conflict that we have, is, is that we know that we are sinners. And it's just so difficult to believe that God really sees us as if we're not. And we have this problem coming to terms with that. Now, Leviticus 7.13 actually helps us to, 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 to get a handle on this. Leviticus 7.13. He says, Beside the cakes he shall offer for his offering leavened bread. This is with his peace offerings. You have to take leavened bread for his offering, it says. Now, why I say, what does leaven represent? Sin. I'm sure we're all, we're all there on that. Now, just keep your finger there and go back to Leviticus 2, verse 11. Leviticus 2, verse 11. Halfway through the verse. Well, it starts off, No meat offering shall be made with leaven. Ye shall burn no leaven, nor honey, in any offering of the Lord made by fire. So God was saying, I don't want to have any leaven in any of your sacrifices. I don't want any leaven. And we know that that's like sin. We mustn't have sin in our sacrifice. But you come to the peace offering, and he says, Offer the sacrifice of peace offering with leavened bread. Well, hold on, I didn't think they were supposed to offer offerings with leaven. Well, they weren't supposed to. But the peace offering was, was very special. And they did have to offer with leaven. And what do we make of that? This is this 
sacrifice, which was to prove that you had peace with God. Well, it's as if when they, they came voluntarily, as the peace offering was a completely voluntary thing, you didn't have to do it, you came to, to celebrate your peace with God, like we've come voluntarily this morning to celebrate our peace with God, to commemorate it. And yet, amidst that joy, that rejoicing that they had this peace with God, they had to have this awareness of the sin that was inside them. They had to offer it with leavened bread, which was, to the Jewish mind would have been very difficult to do, because they kept thinking of Leviticus 2, thinking, but we're not supposed to be offering any sacrifice with leaven. Yet he actually had to do that in this particular case. And so, there's no good... Uh, one of the problems, as I say, we have is, is trying to sort of think, well, have I really got to forget about the fact I'm sinful? That's hard to do. Well, no, no, we're not supposed to forget about the fact we're sinful. It's no good doing that. But what we've got to do is to, uh, is to just recognize that fact. Is to recognize that that is there in us, but also recognize that that in itself does not stop our fellowship with God, as long as we actually recognize it. I think that's, that's just marvelous. That, that the way God handles sin is just so, so tremendous that he's not saying, you know, you've got to be perfect and you, you've got to just be absolutely unleavened with me. He's saying, well, yeah, ideally you've got to be like that, but uh, when you come now, you've made a sin offering, when you really come now to rejoice in fellowship with me, I want you just to remember that you're a sinner. But all the same, let's come and let's have fellowship. Now, Leviticus 7, 12. If he offer it for a thanksgiving, this is peace offering, then he shall offer it with the sacrifice of thanksgiving, unleavened cakes. So the peace offering was a sacrifice of thanksgiving. You look that up in, in your strongs or your youngs, and you see how else the word thanksgiving is translated. It's actually the word for confession. It was a sacrifice of praise, but the same word is confession. It was a sacrifice of confession. And so again, this idea that peace with God is through confession with God opening yourself up and admitting, confessing, confessing. And that is the way to peace with God. If we're going to have the real openness with God, well, inevitably, that's going to involve confession. And so, you know, we, we pause for the exhortation. I mean, how much real, realistic self-examination do we really do? I mean, how much real confession of sin do we make? We wonder why we don't have any peace. But do we really make a lot of effort to actually confess our sins? Or do we just think, oh, but examine myself as you see that bread and wine coming round towards you? I mean, that's, that's not really being serious about it, is it? I mean, do we have very much self-knowledge? It seems to me that human beings just don't have very much self-knowledge. They don't really know themselves. They're not bothered to know themselves. And, and yet, what we're asked to do is to really know ourselves and to really examine ourselves. And that's, I mean, I like to come away from the breaking of bread with some one or two little practical things to put into practice. And I think better self-examination is something we're all sort of a bit short on. And it's something that can sort of bind us together and as it were, fellowship of failure because we've all failed on that point, I'm sure. But we should examine ourselves more and more realistically. And if we do that, and we therefore can make this confession to God, you will find that greater peace with God. And you'll find that greater self-knowledge. You'll know where you're going where you're coming from. Now, let's have a look at um, this Second of Chronicles, um, chapter 30, that we looked at. Now, that's, as it were, a sort of a working model of how you ought to keep the peace offering. Because this is Hezekiah here, 
um, with, with the people. Um, okay. Now, these people were in a bit of a bad way, as we know. They, they'd sinned. And technically, they shouldn't have been keeping any Passover or any offerings at all, because actually they, they were unclean. And there weren't enough priests to really offer the, the sacrifices they ought to have done. So these people were absolutely condemned as, as guilty under the law. They, they really hadn't, they, they shouldn't have been taking these peace offerings. You see verse 17. There were many in the congregation that were not sanctified. You could say that of our little meeting this morning. Not many, but all of us. Not properly sanctified. Verse 18. A multitude of the people had not cleansed themselves. Well, that sounds a bit like us, doesn't it? And yet, Hezekiah then said, Well, the good Lord pardon every one, verse 19, that prepares his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he be not cleansed. And the Lord listened to Hezekiah, and he healed the people. And then, it says, they kept this tremendously joyful feast of unleavened bread, that is the, the Passover, um, and then, verse 22, Hezekiah spoke comfortably unto all the people that taught the good knowledge of the Lord, and then they ate the peace offerings, and, 22, made confession. And 23, they were so happy that they kept another seven days with gladness. So that's just a model peace offering. Absolutely guilty of sin. Not cleansed as they ought to be. And then Hezekiah prayed for their forgiveness. And it says, and Hezekiah spoke comfortably, it says in the AV. In the Hebrew, it's this word, he spoke to the heart of all the people. And he taught them the good knowledge of God. That's why we have a bit of a Bible study before we have our peace offering. Like Hezekiah had a sort of, if you like, a Bible class before they took the peace offerings. And so he spoke to the heart. And that's actually also what the Greek word for exhortation means when he says exhort one another. It's this word, it's a similar Greek word as it is in the Hebrew there, to, to speak to the heart. And that's what we should be doing this, this morning as we're talking to each other and as the word of God is speaking to us. We should be speaking to our heart, right to the real us, to the hidden man of our heart. And so you see that this confession which they made at the same time as they made the peace offerings, this was associated with this great joy. And they were so happy that they kept seven days more with gladness. And so that is the joy then of confession. That's the joy of openness with God. That's the joy of frankly confessing our, our failures. And so the more we can do that, the greater joy we'll have and the, the greater peace we're going to have. And so Israel offered this sacrifice of peace offerings in a lot of different situations. We're told they offered it in the days of their gladness, we're told, in Numbers 10, and in the days of their solemn feasts. They offered it sometimes after they'd had a great victory. Then in Judges 20, it says that they were defeated by their enemies, and they went back, obviously quite depressed, with their own failures and the fact they'd been defeated. What do they do? Is that they offered peace offerings. There's another instance of that as well. When, when they were defeated, they offered peace offerings. So there you are. When Israel won a battle and they lost a battle, in their days of gladness, and in their days of solemnity, they offered peace offerings. Because you've got this tremendous mix of emotions there. Joy, sober recognition of your sins, contrition, 
humility, exaltation of spirit, all rolled together in one. And that's how I feel the breaking of bread is for us. But there's this certainty, this absolute confidence that we'll be in the kingdom, and this knowledge that we're here in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, doing this because we personally believe that we have been forgiven, and that we really are straight with God. And yet this, this sense of seriousness, which can't help but be with us, if we really seriously believe we are going to be in the kingdom, and that's all beautifully brought together in, in the, the feelings we have as, as we, we take this, these emblems. Right, let's have a look at uh, now actually what that animal that they offered actually represented. Because if we were making a sacrifice here, I'd put the animal here on this table, and I'd have my bread and wine with me there, and I'd sit down and eat before the Lord, before the presence of God, I'd eat my animal that I'd killed, I'd take my bread and I'd take my wine. That would be my keeping of the peace offering. So we got the bread and wine, but what does the body represent? The body of that animal. Okay, let's look at Leviticus chapter 3, which is another account of the peace offering. Leviticus 3 verse 1. Leviticus chapter 3 verse 1. He offered his sacrifice of peace offering. It must be without blemish before the Lord. Verse 16. Talking about offering the peace offering. It says, The priest shall burn them upon the altar. It is the food of the offering made by fire for a sweet savour. So then, this sacrifice which they had to eat had to be without blemish and it had to be for a sweet savour. I'm going to whiz to some verses in the New Testament and you, you may not want to just turn them up. You may like to just follow them. First of all, the sacrifice of the peace offering was without blemish. First of Peter 1.19 says that Christ was an animal without blemish and without spot. He was the animal without blemish. 16, verse 16, we're told that peace offering animal was for a sweet savour. Now Ephesians 5, verse 2, comments on that. It almost alludes to those verses. It says, Christ loved us and gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. So I think he's really saying there, Christ gave himself as a peace offering for a sweet-smelling savour. We're told in Ephesians 2 that he is our peace. And I wonder if, couldn't be certain on that, but I wonder if that means he is our peace offering. Like when it says in Romans, he was made sin. Well, it doesn't actually make sense unless you understand that to mean he was made a sin offering. And I wonder when it says he was made peace for us whether that also means he was made a peace offering for us. But that's by the way. So this animal then, which was on the table as it were, with the bread and wine next to it, represented the Lord Jesus Christ. Sweet savour without blemish. And yet we also know that we're told in the New Testament that we are without blemish. That we are without spot. If we're in Christ, and we're told in 2 Corinthians 2, he says, we are unto God a sweet savour of Christ. It's as if, if, if we are in Christ, then all the attributes of Christ, without blemish, sweet savour to God, all those things are, are true of us, if we're in Christ. And surely we should be able to know that, uh, that we are in Christ. Now, 
on this theme of self-examination and knowing whether we're in Christ let's look at 2 Corinthians 13 this is a a real challenge I I think on this issue of self-examination and knowing whether we are in Christ 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 this is Paul as it were at the end of the tether with, with Corinth he says examine yourselves verse 5 whether you be in the faith prove your own selves know ye not your own selves that Jesus Christ is in you unless you are reprobates in other words he's saying if you don't know that Jesus Christ is in you he said you're lost you're reprobate and if Christ is in us as we know from John 17 if he's in us we're in him that's really quite quite cutting isn't it if you don't know that Jesus Christ is in you you're lost in other words if we're in Christ and if you're really in Christ then you'll know it we won't be scratching our heads saying well I don't know maybe I am we should be able to know that we're in Christ this is what Paul says to Corinth you've got to sort this out for yourselves I've argued with you all this time all I can say to you now is you, you know yourself if Christ is in you and this is what it comes down to can we be confident of being in the kingdom are we confident of being in Christ well, we should be able to be I, I really believe although we've got nervousness and I'd put it that way not lack of faith nervousness of believing this nervousness a bit timid a bit nervous about accepting it I really think we do know that we're in Christ I think you know when you look back in your life and you see how God's preserved you not just physically from perhaps death or, or from great physical danger or whatever but the way God's brought you through in so many other ways uh, and the way that God is really there with us so actively in our lives little things, apparently little things I think we know that we're in Christ we should be able to know that so anyway here in Leviticus getting back to the, to the peace offering we're told that this animal was the food of God um, chapter 7 we're in or So chapter 3 sorry chapter 3 verse 11 chapter 3 verse 11 he says that this peace offering animal this is the food of the offering made by fire unto the Lord or it's the same word as the bread this animal then was the bread of God was the bread of the offerings now why is it called the bread or the food of God why is the peace offering called the food of God well why it was called that was because when the offerer had to sit down and eat his peace offering the priest also ate some of the peace offering with him and that represented the way that God was accepting the sacrifice Okay, so there I am if I was in Israel I had this great feeling of peace with God and I really knew I was at one with God and I wanted to rejoice in that and to show that to God I'd bring my animal, kill my animal take my bread and wine, sit down here and start eating my, my, my animal that I killed, which as we've said represented Christ and the priest would come and sit with me perhaps on the other side of the table and he also would eat this animal with me to represent the fact that God was accepting the, the sacrifice and it's in that sense that the animal is called the food of God and in fact all these sacrifices to some degree were the, the food of God in Leviticus 21 you, you get this very often um, 
Leviticus 21 verse 6 he talks about the bread of your God the offerings of the Lord made by fire the bread of their God verse 8 he that the priest offers the bread of, of your God there's a lot of other examples of calling the sacrifices the bread of God the food of God now when I start to talk to you about the bread of God and the food of God of course you, your mind goes I'm sure to John chapter 6 where Jesus says the bread of God is he which came down from heaven that he was the bread of God that's why the rabbis incidentally talk about eating Messiah um, that's another story so Jesus was the, the bread of God and you remember in John 6 he says he links the idea of the bread of God with uh, bread and wine if you go to John 6 um, well verse 33 says, um, Jesus says the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and then he says in the same context in verse 54 53, 54 unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood you have no life in you 55 my flesh is meat indeed my blood is drink indeed and we know that's sort of a prophecy of the, the bread and wine so Jesus when he talks about I am the bread of God he wasn't just alluding to the manna in the wilderness he was actually also alluding to these sacrifices he's saying I am the sacrifice of God I'm the food of God and he says now he says you've got to come and eat me you've got to eat the bread of God and it says as you know they, they turn round many of the people who are following him and turned away verse 66 from that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him this thing verse 67 I think Jesus said that with a sort of lump in his throat he turns to the others and says will you also go away but uh, anyway those Jews then when Jesus said I am the bread of God and here I am come and sit down and eat of me intellectually in their mind they couldn't handle it they turned around intellectually and went away and physically went away because they couldn't cope with this idea that this man Jesus Christ was a sacrifice of God and they were being asked to sit down and eat of that and as it were with God also eating of that sacrifice it's the food of God and so when we take the bread and wine we're sitting here there's no priest the other side because the priest represented God he didn't represent Christ in that time the, the animal represented Christ the priest represented God now the priest is gone and we're sitting down here taking the, the peace offering who's the other side of the table? the almighty God himself this is the bread of God and that's the marvellous thing about the breaking of bread that as we sit here with our peace offering on the table okay, we're all sitting here as it were there's the almighty on the other side this eating before God is, is really the expression the supreme expression of our fellowship with God and here we are looking at these things as it were through a glass darkly struggling surely I think all of us are to really take on board what we're saying but as we actually take this bread and wine Yahweh the God of Israel our God God of our fathers is sitting there the other side taking the, 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 this food with us it's his food as well as ours it's the food of God and Jesus was the food the bread of God the bread that God eats and the bread that we eat and as we said a lot of people couldn't handle that they couldn't handle being brought that close to God like Israel in the past said to Moses we don't want God to speak to us we can't cope with it 
And it's easy for us to say that. It's easy for us to sort of put all this in the back of our mind and take the bread and wine because it's coming towards us this morning and we're here and you can't get out of it. And yet, we've got to actually be here because we want to be here. I believe we're all here because we want to be here and because we're trying to rise up to this, this challenge to actually believe that God is there, really in fellowship with us, that we are before the Lord, that we really are in his presence now. And so we come, not just to think of our fellowship with God, but our fellowship with Christ. And we started off by saying that we have peace with God through the blood of Christ. The fact that we can sit here and God can sit there and we can eat the same meal, that's a sign of peace with God. It's a sign of reconciliation with God. It's a sign of covenant eating together. Covenant relationship. And how can we do that? Why are us mortals able to do that? Because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of what happened on Calvary. Now, it was the love of Christ that was shown to us on the cross. And I'd like us to just remind ourselves that Christ showed his love for us supremely by dying on the cross. As, as we said, Paul said, that, and we looked at this yesterday, he said, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, he recognized that the love of Christ was shown by him giving himself for us. I'd like us to just look at Ephesians chapter 5, which brings this point out. Um, Ephesians 5, verse 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and has given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God. How, does, how did Christ love us? By his death upon the cross. Um, verse 25 Husbands love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it and above all let's just look back at John 13 um, verse 1 it's marvellous words the way this comes over John 13 verse 1 the last part of the verse Jesus knew that he was going to depart out of this world unto the Father. And having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. He loved them unto the end. Which is a prophecy of the sufferings of Christ. He loved us unto the end. How did he love us unto the end? He died on the cross. Man, no man has greater love than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And so that is the love of Christ toward us. The love of Christ was supremely shown on the cross. And as we, uh, as we were emphasizing yesterday, I mean, can we really believe it? Can we rise up intellectually, in our minds, spiritually? Can we rise up to believe this? That in fact, if Christ comes now, we really will be in the kingdom? That there is nothing between us and God? That we are really sitting here, not with some sort of... Uh, touch and go relationship with our Father who's sitting on the other side, but actually in real fellowship through the blood of, of Christ and the work of Christ the, the body of Christ slain on, on that tree can we really believe that? and it comes down, it seems to me how much can we believe the love of Christ? we saw yesterday, didn't we how God rejoices over us as a young man rejoices over a young woman to, to marry her and the problem is though basically how can we believe in the love of God we, we, as it were we see the love of God from afar that lovely hymn we had he says thou hidden love of God I, I see from far thy beauteous light you see it you can see that what I'm saying is true but all of us are as it were looking at this from afar 
through a glass, very darkly. And if I might make a little personal um, reminiscence, which always brings it home to me. When I was um, living for that, that, that year in Africa, there was another brother, another white brother, with me for some time. And he was full of the truth at that time. Uh, he, he was full of the truth. And he, used to, he was living in this one ecclesia, in this one town. And I used to go there just sometimes. And this brother was in love with, with this black sister in the, in the meeting. And he was sort of money, good-looking, young chap, full of the truth. And there she was, just coming to the truth. She just couldn't believe that this, this brother really loved her so much. And when I was visiting that meeting, I, I sort of knew the school, and I used to sit with this sister, or sit just behind her. And I can recall her once. There he was, up where I am, with a bread and wine in front of him, and he was talking to this little ecclesia. I was sitting just behind this sister. There she was, writing notes on what he was saying, enthralled with what he was saying. Really, you could see, getting enthusiastic about the wonder of the truth as he was putting it, putting it over. And yet, I could see her eyes were filled with tears, and she was just shaking her head. She was just shaking her head very, very slowly, as if she saw this love that was sort of being directed towards her in him from him. And yet she just felt she couldn't relate to it. She couldn't relate to it at all. And she sort of knew it was there, but she couldn't bring herself to actually take hold of it, to accept it. I used to talk to her, and I, I quoted those words from the Song of Solomon. I said, you know, the man there represented Christ, and the woman represents us, the church. And I said, you remember how that, um, how the woman says, but I'm black, my, my skin is black, and uh, I'm just a shepherd girl. And I said, but the king of Israel says to her, he says, you're black, but you're comely, it says on the AV. Um, and it was so difficult to persuade that, that little colored girl that this brother really loved her. And, uh, there she was, looking up at him and at the bread and wine, shaking her head.